0: Good morning. morning. Let's pause once again for prayer. Uh, Continue in our communion with our Lord this morning. Let's pray. Father, already this morning we have been dwelling richly on your excellency, the excellency of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray now, Lord, that as again we venture into this topic that is the favorite topic of Father and Spirit, uh, namely the topic of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We pray your blessing. We pray your attendance over your word. We pray for ennoblement and empowerment and anointing. We pray, Lord, for each hearer uh, that we would hear well, listen well, and be changed and transformed by your Holy Spirit uh, and your word this morning. Lord God, it is so rich and so good for us to gather like this, as we do every Sunday, as your people in this neighborhood. And Lord, I pray again a special blessing over your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this uh, Crosswords sermon series is now half over, and today's sermon on the subject of substitution has been purposely placed here at about the halfway point of the series, right smack dab in the middle. And the reason for placing this particular sermon strategically near the middle of the series is that substitution is what John Stott has called the heart of the cross. Substitution is really the heart of the atonement, the heart of what was transpiring On the cross of Jesus Christ. Substitution, we might say, is essential to all the other motifs and themes that we've been preaching in this series. It's essential to sacrifice and to propitiation and redemption and justification, etc., so some of what I'm going to preach today might sound familiar to you. Some of it you might find is ground that we've already covered in the first five sermons. But again, since substitution is really the essence of the cross, we've decided to devote an entire sermon to the topic. Now, I've been at Snowden for just over a year now. And you may have noticed by now that I hold to a basic position or I have a basic contention when it comes to interpreting the Bible. And that is that in order to understand the New Testament and engage the New Testament in the way that I think we should understand and engage it, it is first going to be necessary for us to understand the Old Testament and vice versa. So we won't grasp, in other words, the Old Testament unless we have grappled with the New Testament. The Bible is an organic whole, and it is meant to be read in that way. And so today, in this sermon on the motif of substitution, you may have guessed, we don't begin at the cross of Jesus Christ. We begin instead in the Old Testament. The contention is, that seeing how the motif of substitution works itself out in the Old Testament is going to help us understand and grasp what's going on with Jesus substituting himself for sinners in the New Testament. And seeing the whole biblical sweep, I think, I hope, will bring us this morning to a deeper place of worship. Now, in the Old Testament, there is what I would call a... Tension when it comes to the idea of substitution. On one hand, we have several texts, and I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles and flip around with me a little bit today. We have several texts in the Old Testament where the view that is presented is that people simply die as a result of their own sins. So in this first group of texts, there is no hint that another person could come along and possibly stand in as a substitute for the sinner, to take the sinner's sins and die in his or her place. No, the, the basic idea in this first group of, of passages is, as the theologian Simon Gathercole has summarized it, he says, Death is the divine penalty for transgressing, and because everybody transgresses, everybody dies. End of story. In this first group of Old Testament texts, people die for their own sins. And so we have 1 Kings 16, verses 18 and 19, where the fifth king of Israel, the short-lived king of Israel, a man named Zimri, is said there to have died because of the sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Zimri died for his own sins. No one comes along in 1 Kings 16 as Zimri's substitute to die for his sins, to take his place. And we have a text like Numbers 27.3, where the daughters of Zelophehad, I think I got that right, they say to Moses, our father died for his own sin. Zelophehad died for his own sin. No one comes onto the scene in Numbers 27 or, or any other place in Numbers to die as a vicarious substitute for had. And we have another text Deuteronomy 24:16 where the law actually stipulates no substitution on the human level. Substitution in the matter of dying is forbidden. Deuteronomy 24:16 says that listen to what it says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. As Simon Gathercole says, it is the standard view, the standard view of the Old Testament that people die as a result of their own sins. And we could add here the first sentence in Jeremiah 31.30. Everyone shall die for his own iniquity. We could add seven seven different texts that are found in Ezekiel chapters 3, chapters 18, chapter 33, each of which come to that very same conclusion, a person dies for his or her own sins and iniquities, no substitutes. But now on the other hand, and herein lies the Old Testament tension, We have a second group of texts in the Old Testament where the idea of substitution, the idea specifically of animals or human beings standing in the place of sinners, is an idea that is upheld and affirmed in a a positive sort of a way. One of the earliest instances of the concept of substitution for sinners is found in Genesis chapter 8. Right after the flood that had been caused, we remember the flood had been caused by human sin, right after that, Noah builds an altar to God there once the waters have subsided, and he offers animal sacrifices. Dead animals that stand in for sinners. Those animal sacrifices serve in that text To soothe God or quiet God, so that God declares that He would never again curse the ground or strike down every living creature. In Genesis 8, it appears that animals die as substitutes for sinful human beings. The animals serve there to quiet the wrath of God. Traveling forward in the Old Testament, of course, we have the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, we talked about the Passover in our sermon series on the book of Exodus. The Passover is where, among other things, one-year-old slain lambs act as substitutes for sinful Hebrew people. Ezekiel 20, verses 7 through 10, tells us very plainly that even while they were enslaved in Egypt, the Hebrew people had been engaged in idolatry. And therefore, they were ripe for the judgment of God, even as they were enslaved. But the Passover lambs were slain instead of the people. The lambs acted, among other things, as slain substitutes for the sinful people who deserved to die for their mutiny against Almighty God. And then as the book of Leviticus opens, we're traveling through here. We have what appears, as Leviticus opens, what appears to be a clear example of substitution in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. There... Animals are offered as sacrifices to the Lord and these sacrifices are necessary in order for the Lord to accept the sinners who offer the sacrifices. The sinner laid hands on the animal and laying hands signified a transference of guilt onto the sacrificial animal substitute. The animal acts as a stand-in for the sinner so that the sinner can be accepted before the Lord. And of course the substitution of animals for sinners is a massive part, is it not, in the Day of Atonement ceremony in Leviticus chapter 16. We talked about that several weeks ago in our sermon on sacrifice. During the Day of Atonement, two goats acted as substitutes for the people. The first goat was slain. Its blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. The slaying of the first goat was necessary because the wages of sin is death, and the people had sinned. The goat stood in for the people and died to atone for the people's sins. And then the second goat, the second goat was brought to the high priest, The high priest would lay his hands on its head, confessing the sins of Israel as he did that. The sins of Israel were, in effect, transferred away from the people onto the goat. And that second goat was then driven outside the camp, acting as a substitute, acting as a place taker for the sinful people who themselves deserved to be driven outside of the camp on account of their sin. So substitution was a huge part of the Day of Atonement ceremonies. That's Leviticus chapter 16. But now coming back around to our point here, there is this apparent tension in the Old Testament that I've tried to demonstrate a little bit, a tension between one group of passages that seems to say no substitutes that will take the place of sinners. And another group of texts that seems to suggest quite clearly that substitution for sinners was always part of God's plan. So there is this apparent, what I would call, a murkiness through much of the Old Testament with regard to the concept of substitution. About a week ago, I replaced some burnt-out bulbs in our upstairs hallway. The light fixture is wired there to one of those dimmer switches that, with the little slider that makes the lights go from uh, a really dim light up to their full blazing glory. It's been nice to have light up in that hallway again. Sometimes, when you just have the Old Testament in front of you, it's like the dimmer switch is turned really low. It's sometimes hard to find your way just with the Old Testament in front of you because there's a lack of light on things. It's sort of like looking for a set of keys in a darkened room. What you need is the light Of the New Testament, where the dimmer switch is turned all the way up to its highest level. You need that light in order to see in the Old Testament what's been there all along. Just before we venture into the New Testament and the full-on blazing light that is cast on this idea of substitution, when Jesus substitutes himself in the place of sinners on his cross, we need to finish up our look at the Old Testament, with a passage, now I want you to hear this, where the dimmer switch, it goes from low now up to about one-third on the slider. In other words, the passage that we want to look at, at now, which is Isaiah 53, sheds considerably more light on the subject of substitution, more light than any other Old Testament passage that we've already surveyed this morning. So Isaiah 53, turn there. This is really the premier Old Testament passage when it comes to this motif of substitution for sinners. And this time we notice it's no animal that acts as a sacrificial substitute for sinners, but rather it's Isaiah's servant of the Lord. Now, all I want us to do here in Isaiah 53 is to look at about seven verses, many of them were read for us earlier, where the servant substituting himself for sinners is the key idea here. Keep in mind that Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ. He prophesied that there would be this servant figure who would come on the scene And this servant figure would substitute himself, take the place of sinners. Listen for the language of substitution, first of all, in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. In these three verses, this week in my study, I counted seven different instances of substitution or the idea of substitution. So Isaiah said, first of all, that instead of sinners bearing their own griefs, the servant would bear our griefs. See the idea of substitution there in verse 4. He would act as a substitute in the area of griefs and sorrows in that department. And then instead of sinners being pierced for their own transgressions, The servant would be pierced for those transgressions. Verse 5, substitution. Indeed, the servant would take the place of sinners and would be, notice in the text, crushed. Or we could translate it pulverized. Not for his own iniquities, but crushed for the iniquities of others. Verse 5. Are you thankful this morning if you're a believer? Upon him would be the chastisement or the punishment. Note that well. The punishment that would bring peace to the sinners who deserve the punishment. Verse 5. And by the servant's wounds. By the servant's. Welts others would be healed, verse five. On the servant, verse six, would be laid the iniquity of us all. He would substitute for sinners as the iniquity bearing. Sacrifice. What we notice in these three verses of Isaiah 53 is that not only do we have the concept of substitution here in abundance, we further have the idea, listen very carefully, we have the idea of penal substitution. Penal substitution. There is the idea of penalty for sin here with that word chastisement, or perhaps better translated punishment, in verse 5. The punishment for the sins of others would be laid upon the substitutionary servant. Punishment of sins is necessary in order that peace between sinners and God could be restored, and the servant takes the punishment that was due to others for their sins. Well, if we skip down to verse 8, we see the idea of substitution for sinners once again. As the servant is said in verse 8 to be stricken, notice, not for his own transgressions, right? But stricken for the transgressions of God's people. He would act as the substitute for transgressors of God's law. And then verses 10 through 12, more substitutionary language in this great text of Isaiah. In verse 10, the servant would be an offering for guilt. And in verse 11, the servant would make many to be accounted righteous and bear their iniquities. And verse 12, the servant would be numbered with the transgressors and he'd bear the sin of many. So there's no denying that Isaiah 53 teaches substitution. The servant suffering and dying and offering himself in the place of others for the sins of others. To be punished in the place of others. To atone for others. In Isaiah 53, the dimmer switch on the idea of substitutionary atonement is definitely turned up a notch or three There's increasing light as the revelation of Scripture unfolds. But folks, it's in the New Testament where the dimmer switch is turned all the way up to high and the full blessed light and revelation concerning substitutionary sacrifice is unveiled. Now, as we consider the one who is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53... Jesus Christ, bleeding and dying on his cross, taking the place of sinners, acting as their substitute, taking the divine wrath that sinners deserved for their sin, what I want to do here is begin by affirming and stressing, and this is very important, affirming and stressing one more time, as we have over past weeks, that in no way should we understand the substitution of Jesus as Jesus being pushed reluctantly or against his will to the cross by an angry father. No, no, no. A thousand times, no. Rather, Jesus goes to the cross in the Trinitarian plan as the willing... Agent who accomplishes the redemption of sinners. The willing agent. That servant passage in Isaiah 53 that we were just meditating on mentions the servant being exalted by Yahweh because, listen to the language that Isaiah uses, because he poured out his soul to death. He poured out his soul to death. Jesus, God's holy servant, poured out his own soul to death on the cross willingly and voluntarily. Jesus said in John 10, verses 17 and 18, listen to what he says. He said that he lays down his life of his own accord. Of his own accord. That, that he had authority to lay down his own life. So that the penal substitution that was happening on the cross of Jesus was a willing project on the part of the Son of God. He was not coerced. He was not forced there by an angry father. Which is why the Apostle Paul in places like Galatians 1, four and Galatians 2.20... Paul can talk about Jesus giving himself on the cross. So that's the first thing that we need to be crystal clear on as we talk about Jesus substituting himself in the place of sinners on the cross. This was Jesus willingly bleeding and dying for the sake of sinners. Willingly. The second thing we need to reckon with In regard to the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Is that the cross was indeed. A substitution. Listen. It wasn't just that Jesus on the cross was acting as our representative. Like a lawyer who pleads on behalf of his client. It wasn't. Merely that Jesus on his cross was acting in solidarity with others. The cross was more than that. The cross was, listen, the lawyer taking the place of his clients. Amen? The cross was the lawyer taking the penalty and the sentence that the clients deserved for their crimes, so that the clients don't have to suffer. The cross was about substitution, place-taking. Jesus, as the second person of the Holy Trinity, was certainly offended by human sin, and therefore Jesus had every right to demand that sinners satisfy the demands of God. But Jesus, in the words of Donald MacLeod, Jesus allows himself to be reckoned as a sinner and dealt with as a sinner. And not only by men, but by God. He takes the place, we need to understand, of sinners on his cross. Lo, the good shepherd... For the sheep is offered, the slave hath sinned, and the son hath suffered. For our atonement, while we nothing heeded, God interceded. Now let me just bless you with a variety of New Testament texts where the motif of substitution crops up in relation to the cross of Jesus Last week we looked briefly at Mark 10.45. Listen to it again. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we said that that little word for toward the end of that verse is translated from a Greek word, in the original text, that literally means instead of. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom instead of many, in the place of many. He acted as a substitute for sinners. The Apostle Paul teaches the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus in several places of his letters. In Romans 4.25, Paul says that Jesus was delivered up For our trespasses. And the word for in that phrase can be translated viably as on account of or because of. Jesus was delivered up on account of or because of our trespasses. It wasn't any trespass of his own that Jesus was crucified for. Jesus stood in for sinners, substituted himself, for sinners on account of their trespasses. Or Romans 5.8, where we have the little phrase, Christ died for us. Again, the idea is Christ died in behalf of us, as our substitute. Or 2 Corinthians 5.15, Jesus died for all or in behalf of all, and then later in the same verse, Jesus died for the sake of others. More substitutionary language there in Paul. Or Galatians 1.4. Jesus gave himself for, or gave himself as a result of, our sins. He substituted himself as a result of our sins, to deal with our sins. Or listen to the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.24 where he says that Jesus bore our sins or we could say he took the blame for our sins. He accepted the punishment for our sins in his body on the tree, not his own sins, our sins. We should have been bearing our own sins. We should have paid the penalty of God's wrath. On our own cross, but Jesus, blessed Jesus, goes in our place as our substitute. In 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says also that Christ also suffered once for sins. Listen to the substitutionary language here. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Did you hear that? For sins, the righteous goes, stands in on the cross for the unrighteous ones. So, friends, the New Testament is where the dimmer switch is turned up to high, and we get this glorious light on substitutionary sacrifice, the substitutionary nature of the cross. But it's perhaps two texts in particular that top the list of substitutionary sacrifice texts in the New Testament, and they're found in 1 Corinthians 15:3 and Galatians 3.13. We want to just spend a little bit of time in our closing moments meditating on these two glorious substitution texts. Now what I want us to notice, first of all, if you're at 1 Corinthians 15, I I want us to notice in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, Paul says, notice carefully, that he's reminding his readers here of the gospel. Notice that very carefully. He starts in verses 1 and 2 by saying. Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel. That I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. So then we know after reading those initial two verses, that whatever comes next in the passage is going to be some sort of outline of the gospel. What is the gospel? That's the reason we're gathered here this morning. What is the gospel? Listen to what Paul says in verse 3. He says, For I deliver to you as of what? First importance could have delivered a lot of things to you but i delivered to you as first importance what i also received notice what he says next that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and we're going to stop right there note well friends that the first thing that rolls off Paul's pen as he summarizes the gospel is that christ died For, Christ died in behalf of, Christ died as a result of, he died to deal with our sins. Do you see this? He's talking here about substitution. Christ went in our place to the cross and died for, as a result of, to deal with our sins. So that according to Paul, and we need to see this, according to Paul, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is massively vital and crucial and central to the gospel. Now in our new members class at Snowden, we ask candidates to tell us what the gospel is. If you want to take membership here at Snowden, just memorize 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, and you'll be in a perfect position to tell us what the gospel is. The gospel, in large measure, is about Jesus substituting himself on the cross for sinners. Well, for the sake of time, we have to move now to the final substitution text in the New Testament that I wanted us to camp on just briefly. That's Galatians 3.13. So the dimmer switch on the notion of substitution in this text is off the charts. It's so bright. In their book, Pierced for Our Transgressions, the writers Jeffrey, Ovi, and Sack say this. They say it's hard to imagine a plainer statement of the doctrine of penal substitution than Galatians 3.13. Michael Byrd has said that Galatians 3.13 is on top of the A-list of penal substitution texts. Now, just to make sure we get some context here, in Galatians 3.10, if you have your Bible open, Paul has just talked in Galatians 3.10 about a curse that comes on people because of their disobedience to the law of God. A curse. In verse 13, he's going to mention the same curse that has resulted from disobedience. Verse 13 reads as follows. Christ redeemed us. We talked about redemption last week. Redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? By becoming a curse for us. We ought to be shouting hallelujah right now. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, everyone, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The question is this. How does Jesus redeem us according to this verse? He redeems us by becoming a curse For us, He redeems us. He buys us out of our slavery to sin by becoming a curse on our behalf. He redeems us by having, listen, by having the curse that we were under for our disobedience transferred onto Him. He redeems us, in short, by substituting Himself in our place on the cross. Commenting on Galatians 3.13, Martin Luther said this. I love this passage. He said, Our most merciful Father. Do you know him as merciful? Our most merciful Father, seeing us to be oppressed and overwhelmed with the curse of the law. Every human being knows That they're guilty. Amen. They have a sense. That they're guilty. Even if they don't believe in God. They have this nagging sense of guilt. Our most merciful father. Seeing us to be oppressed and overwhelmed. With the curse of the law. And so to be holden under the same. That we could never be delivered from it. Of our own power. Sent his only son into the world and laid upon him all the sins of all men, saying, Be thou Peter, that denier, Paul, that persecutor and cruel oppressor, David, that adulterer, that sinner who did eat the fruit in Eden, that thief who hanged upon the cross, And briefly, be thou that person who hath committed the sins of all men. See therefore that thou pay and satisfy for them. And then, says Luther, here cometh the law and saith of Jesus, I find him a sinner and such a one as hath taken upon him the sins of all men, and I see no sins else but in him, therefore let him die upon the cross, and so setteth upon him and killeth him. By this means, said Luther, the whole world is purged and cleansed from sin and so delivered from death and all evils. Amen? What is the doctrine of penal substitution that we've been trying to get at this morning? Let me give you several very helpful definitions of penal substitution from from a few different theologians whom I... Trust dearly. I want to give you a few definitions here, just to help you absorb this very central element of the gospel that we have come to celebrate today. So first, the writers Jeffrey Ovi and Sack, in that book I've mentioned, "Pierced for Our Transgressions," they say this. They say, "The doctrine of penal substitution states that God gave Himself in the person of His Son to suffer." Instead of us that death punishment and curse due to fallen humanity as the penalty for sin I think that's a very helpful concise description of this crucial doctrine of penal substitution once again the doctrine of penal substitution states that God gave himself in the person of his son to suffer instead of us the death, punishment, and curse due to fallen humanity as the penalty for sin. The second helpful description of the, penal, of the doctrine of penal substitution comes to us from a well-regarded professor at my alma mater, Southern Seminary. Dr. Tom Schreiner says that substitution is where the Father, because of his love for human beings, because of his love For human beings, sent his Son, who offered himself willingly and gladly to satisfy God's justice, so that Christ took the place of sinners. The punishment and penalty we deserved was laid on Jesus Christ instead of us, so that in the cross both God's holiness and love. Are manifested. Yes. Substitutionary atonement. Described very well there. Defined for us very accurately. Again a reminder. That what we're talking about. Is really the essence of the gospel. And then the last description. Of penal substitutionary atonement. Comes to us from J.I. Packer. This one always brings me to a place of worship. Packer says. The notion. Which the phrase penal substitution expresses is that Jesus Christ our Lord, moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, praise God, moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise inescapably destined and so won us forgiveness, adoption, and glory. Packer says, to affirm penal substitution is to say that believers are in debt to Christ specifically for this, and that, thi- that this is the mainspring of all their joy, peace, and praise, both now and for eternity. Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. Lord, if thou my pardon hast secured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, Payment God cannot twice demand. First from my bleeding surety's hand. And then again from mine. (laughs) Hallelujah. The gospel says that Jesus has gone and has suffered in our stead. So that we would not have to suffer. The gospel says that Jesus underwent penal perishing. As our substitute, that is, Jesus suffered the death of divinely ordained penalty for human sin. So that we would not have to perish in that manner. All we have to do now is go to sleep briefly and wake up in the presence of Jesus if we're believers. The gospel declares that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. So that we would not have to drink it. The gospel says that Jesus was cursed. So that we would not have to be cursed. The gospel says that the second person of the Trinity was forsaken. That we would not have to be. He was condemned that we would not have to be. He went to the cross in our place as our substitute. Now, to those in listening range this morning who have already trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I say to you, in the words of John Calvin, keep this dear truth of Christ's substitution for you in the forefront of your mind and heart always. Calvin says, lest you tremble and remain anxious throughout life. As if God's righteous vengeance, which the Son of God has taken upon himself, still hung over you. See how pastoral Calvin was? Allow the truth of Christ substituting himself for you on his cross to calm your conscience, believer. Your sins have already been judged, have already been punished in the person and in the death of Jesus Christ. Praise God. But now to the person, in, and then I'm done, to the person in listening range who is not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to listen very carefully. I submit to you this morning that you have made a fearful substitution. Whether or not you are conscious of that fact. What you've done is that you've substituted or you've, exchanged, to use the, the terminology of the Apostle Paul, you've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Romans 1 verse 23. To use John Piper's image, you have rejected the fresh, perfect steak and lobster dinner, God, in favor of the moldy piece of who knows what in the Tupperware container at the back of the fridge. You've substituted moldy poison for the filet mignon that is God. To use the prophet Jeremiah's image, you've forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, in favor of broken cisterns, That can hold no water. That's what every unbeliever does. And so I plead with you this morning to run to God and turn away from your sin. I plead with you this morning to see Jesus Christ on his cross as the one who substituted himself for you. And he did it because of that fearful substitution that you have made in exchanging the worship of God for moldy, deathly idolatry. Trust and receive the substitute Jesus Christ who died to cover your sins. And I am always more than happy to talk with you and pray with you if you would approach me after service today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are seeing, as we meditate on the cross, increasing vistas of the depth of your love for us. We're seeing, uh, hopefully, increasing glory in the cross and in the way that you have gone to these extravagant lengths to save such as we. And we just simply want to say thank you. We praise you. We say that we adore you because of the plan of salvation and Jesus Christ and his cross. And Lord God, this week, may we be on tenterhooks, in step with the Spirit, waiting in anticipation to move when you say move, to speak when you say speak, to be quiet when you say be quiet. Help us to be a light in our community of the gospel of Jesus Christ to whoever we come in contact with. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.